Hello, church. You can see I have switched locations and I have changed my, my, my background, the background behind me. I thought maybe you were tired of my white closets and needed a different look. And besides, it's always a good thing to shake things up a little bit in the church. Yes, we haven't had enough shaking up. But anyway, uh, the brown background does have the advantage of, of highlighting my very white hair, which my wife says actually glows in the dark. Well, last week I began a series of messages on the theme, what Jesus is saying to his church. We'll be taking a look at uh, Jesus' messages to the seven churches mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. But let us begin with prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, open our minds to the truth of your word. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our hearts to love him more and more. Strengthen our wills through the power of your Holy Spirit to do only that which is pleasing in your sight, so that in all things your name may be glorified. Amen. While John was worshiping on the Lord's day in exile on the island of Patmos, a vision came to him with such force that it literally knocked him off his feet. It was a vision of the Lord in all his majesty and glory, walking among seven golden lampstands the lampstands representing the seven churches of the Roman province of Asia, now in present-day Western Turkey. He had seven stars in his right hand, which signifies his power and authority over these churches and their leaders. John sees the risen Jesus walking amongst them, inspecting them, evaluating them. Jesus knows them through and through. He knows the strengths and the weaknesses of each church just as he knows the strength and the weaknesses of our church, and he desires to speak to them. Jesus tells John to write these messages down and send them on to the churches. It's fitting that Jesus should want to speak to the church at Ephesus first. The city itself was the most important of the seven. In fact, it was one of the most important cities in the whole Roman Empire. In New Testament times, it had a population of a quarter million. A busy commercial center, the city had a harbor at the time and was advantageously situated on the main trade route between Rome and the east. The city was beautiful and filled with temples. The most notable temple was that dedicated to the goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People from all over the world came to this temple to offer sacrifices. The city was also famous for its amphitheater, which could seat 45,000 people, about the same as Safeco Field. It was a city known for its various mystery cult religions. Apostle Paul spent a great deal of time here on his missionary journeys. In fact, he was here two or three years. And the city was well known to the Apostle John, who lived here and was a leader of the Ephesian church. It's said that after the crucifixion, John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, to live here and cared for her as a son. Listen now as Jesus speaks to his church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. 
Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church at Ephesus had a lot going for it. It was a church doing many things right. And these things are duly noted by the Lord. For one thing, it was a church that had labored long and hard. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work. The Greek word used here has a sense of working to the point of exhaustion. This was a church that was a, a veritable beehive of activity. It was a busy church. We, we can imagine that they were busy caring for widows and orphans, teaching the young, visiting the sick. We can imagine them engaged in all sorts of charitable deeds. Perhaps they had a very active women's group and men's group and various ministries. Perhaps every member was doing something. They were diligent and conscientious. It was a church that was working hard, busy in the service of God and of others. And that was a very good thing. It was also a church that was holding up well under pressure. Jesus says, I also know that you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Life was difficult for the Christians in that city. Christian faith was ruining the idol manufacturing business in town and Christians therefore bore the brunt of criticism for problems in the economy and they were shunned in the marketplace. You may remember from the book of Acts how the Apostle Paul got in trouble with the silversmiths in the city who were producing statuettes of the goddess Artemis. Well, Paul's preaching against idol worship caused a riot and Paul was thrown into prison. And so the followers of Jesus were treated as social outcasts. But not only that, the fact that Christians refused to confess Caesar as Lord and to offer sacrifices to him led to periods of physical persecution by political authorities. Despite the fact that they were up against fierce local opposition, the Ephesian Christians were firm and unswerving in their faith. Jesus commends them for their perseverance. The church at Ephesus was also commended by Jesus for its orthodoxy. Here was a church that held to the truth of the gospel though many false teachers tried to, to lead people astray. It seems that some self-styled apostles called Nicolaitans had visited Ephesus. We don't know very much about them, but it's enough to know that their teaching was seriously mistaken. Apostle Paul had earlier warned the elders of the Ephesian church that an invasion of heretical teachers would take place. He said to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. But to their credit, the Ephesian Christians listened carefully to teaching, searched the scriptures and practiced discernment and distinguishing truth from falsehood. They did not tolerate false teaching. For them, truth mattered. They valued good biblical teaching. Holding fast to the truth that's in Jesus Christ is a very good and important thing. So the church at Ephesus was in many ways, it was a great church. It was a model church. The members were busy in service. They were patient in suffering and they were orthodox in belief. They stood for the truth of the gospel. Jesus commends the church for these things. 
but then his tone changes and the message turns from commendation to complaint. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. They may have been busy in service, patient in suffering, orthodox in belief, but they were lacking the most important thing, love. Didn't used to be the case. Their church was founded in love. Love for God was their motivating principle. But they began to lose their zeal for the Lord and allowed the fires of that, of that early love to grow cool. Same thing had happened to God's people in Jeremiah's day. God through Jeremiah says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. But the people lost their first love and God had rebuked them. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And so for the Ephesians, it may well be that because their love for God began to grow cool, so too did their love for others. It may be that in their serving others, the Ephesians lost their sense of compassion, becoming more a duty to discharge than a blessing to share. Again and again, the New Testament points to the preeminence of love. There is faith and hope, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus sums up the law and the prophets with the first and the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing more important in a church than love. I mean, a church without love is a church without life. Without the passion of love, the church's ministry is but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Hard work then becomes drudgery if it isn't a labor of love. Endurance and suffering can be hard and bitter if it isn't softened and sweetened by love. Orthodoxy, right belief, is cold and dead and rigid and grim without the warmth that love injects into it. Without love, our light goes out. The Lord might as well just take our lampstand away. Like the church at Ephesus, most churches and the Christians who join them don't start out this way. They, they begin in love. They start out with great passion. But what begins as wholehearted commitment to Christ and to his work has a tendency to gradually cool and they find themselves far from God. It's a problem of spiritual passion and of focus. Earl Palmer, former pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, in his commentary on Revelation, calls this problem the, the Ephesian syndrome. And he describes it this way. He says, a man or a woman is first united with the Christian church because of having discovered and believed in Jesus Christ and his love. At first, everything is new and he or she is excited about growing as a disciple and is filled with joy. After a few years of being a Christian, that person becomes a leader in the church with very heavy responsibilities. But then something happens along the way. That person, saddled with all this work in the church, experiences a change of focus and perhaps a change of lifestyle. No longer is it Christ's love that motivates. The first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy, high cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. Church work becomes the focus, not the Lord of life who loves us and who would have us love him 
in return. Well, I've seen that happen myself in the church. The Ephesian syndrome is, is a tragic thing. It's, it's a drift into respectable, passionless religion that is more a burden than a joy. It's not unlike what happens in a marriage. I mean, there's initial love and passion at first. The happy couple can't wait to be in one another's presence, but, but then the couple settles down. Life happens. They, they both become distracted. They begin to take each other for granted. And if they don't work at their relationship, they can go further and further apart. If churches and individual Christians have lost the adventure and excitement of their relationship with Jesus, then they need to rekindle their original first love. The reason why so many churches and individuals are lacking in love is because they're no longer on intimate terms with the Lord of life. They're busy doing good things, but they no longer know how to simply enjoy being in the presence of God. They're working for him, but not with him. They take God for granted. No, no wonder they know fear and stress and weariness. Jesus calls us back into personal relationship calls you and me to remember how it was when we first discovered his love for us and how we responded. Do you remember the time when God first became more than just a word to you? Do you remember a time when you poured out your heart to him in prayer and you first, well, and you, and you felt heard and loved? Do you remember the time when you first became aware of God's purpose and plan for your life and how excited you were about becoming and being a disciple? Your worship was fresh, your prayer life was rich, and you couldn't wait to find out what God was saying to you in the Bible. Do you remember the joy of taking your first steps and sharing your faith, be it through giving or serving? You, you were filled with the love of God. And you know what? It can be that way again. Jesus calls you and me away from a preoccupation with secondary church activities to a renewed focus on him and his love calls us back to the need to listen to him, to sit in his presence, to pray, and to worship. This past Tuesday, our men's Bible study was discussing the passage in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus comes to the house of Martha and Mary. And Martha uh, frantically throws herself into making preparations for a meal while Mary chooses to sit with Jesus and to listen to him. And Martha then complains that she's having to do all the work and goes to Jesus saying, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to come over here and help me. It's kind of strange. I mean, she actually blames Jesus for not caring enough to send her sister out of the kitchen to help her. And Jesus says, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up about nothing. One thing only is essential and Mary has chosen it, it's the main course. It won't be taken from her. Seems that the church gets so distracted in its busyness that it forgets the main course. Our faith then becomes a chore and a bore. We become known as God's frozen chosen. We lose contact with God who longs to have fellowship with us. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. He wants to walk with us and to bless us and to empower us and to fill us with his joy. The one thing needful, says the risen Jesus, is for the church to rekindle its first love, to be on intimate terms with God again, giving itself over to the practice of those disciplines that have always brought people of faith into contact with God. Repent, he says, and do the things you did at first. Is Jesus referring to the renewed practice of prayer, of worship, of sitting in God's presence, taking nourishment for our souls? I think so. 
Worship has been defined as loving God back. Let us then learn to love God back. The fresh springs of life in Jesus arise only as we worship and keep close to him day by day, week in, week out. Since we're not gathering together for in-person worship during this pandemic, it becomes more important than ever for each of us to do whatever we can to maintain our relationship with God. By all means, keep tuning in to our online worship service. Spend more time in the Bible. Maintain a devotional life of prayer and meditation. Pray for others. But the goal of all our worship and prayer is to reach what is described in this letter to the Ephesians as the right to eat from the tree of life, the right to be partakers of Christ in his kingdom paradise forever, and to know life in all its fullness. If the drift of our life has been increasingly away from him, then today is the day to repent. That is to turn around and head in a different direction. And if we do so, God will happily greet us and God will refresh us with his love and will send us out with a new passion to serve him by serving others so that love becomes our trademark. Our trademark. Renew your early devotion, says Jesus. Get back to doing the things you used to do. If we maintain intimacy with him, we will do some of the same things we did before, but there will be a new passion in doing of them a new singleness of mind and purpose, a new secret of joyful perseverance, and a new concern and care for everyone. Hard work, patient endurance, right belief, all good things, but it doesn't make a church. There is a person we need to love. Love is the first mark of a church. Love for God will transform and change everything. O oh God, who has prepared for those that love you such good things as past human understanding, pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can imagine or desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.